something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I gotta say, I just glanced over. I know you've been cleaning off the bookshelves lately. Mm -hmm. And so there's some rearranged books, and there's a stack laying on its side. And the book on the top is a Rick Steves travel book, and it's called <laughs> Europe Through the Back Door. Listen, we had this conversation when I was given that book. <laughs> Did we? I don't remember ever seeing it before. We were like, I don't know if I want to explore Europe through the back door. <laughs> <laughs> but Rick Steves is the, the guy, I guess. He does have a lot of good information still. What a life. Oh, I just want to get paid to go places and tell people about how I went there. Very true. I already do it so much. I know, for free. Yeah. I've, hell, I pay to. <laughs> it's almost... You know, Christmas in the way that we celebrate it. We got our tree up. Finally. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're commercial uh, holiday celebrators mm -hmm. around here. Mm -hmm. And so we watched, what, what did we watch? Some TV episodes last night. Oh, yeah. But it's almost movie time. Because mm -hmm. the, the, the days leading up to Christmas, you got to crank out the movies. So true. What's, what's your, give me your top three. Well, Muppet Christmas Carol. Number one. Easily. Easy. I mean, I still love Home Alone. I, I okay, could yeah, probably do yeah. it <laughs> from memory, but <laughs> it feels so nostalgic. It's a good one. Spirited is kind of a new fave, I guess. Oh, my God. Why is it so good? It was so fun. Yeah. I also love Klaus, oh, I Klaus, guess, yes. the animated movie where Beautiful he has to go movie. to the North Pole and make the post office work and he invents writing letters to right. Santa and stuff. It's so fun and good and I love it. That movie doesn't get the respect it deserved. That movie was hand drawn. Yeah. To look like CG stop motion. It, it's mm -hmm. it's just like every animation style at once, but it was all done by hand. It's wow. gorgeous. It really is. Yeah. And the voices are great. Like yep. the cast is really great. The story's really sweet. And I mean, he goes up there and the town is like horrible. It's like chaos. Right. Everybody's really <laughs> mean to each other. So it's pretty funny. I love it. It was, it was a really good one. That's a really if good one. If you're looking for kind of a newer one, I guess. I don't yeah, know when that came out. Yeah, a few years ago. It was a few years ago. 2017 but or something like that. That sounds right. Yeah. It's on Netflix. It's really good. Yeah. Uh, Muppets is so good. Klaus is great. I also really weirdly love the the Guardians. What's it called? Oh, uh, Rise of the Guardians. Rise of the Guardians. Yes, yeah. that's a great movie. Jack Frost and Santa and the Easter Bunny and yeah, the Tooth Fairy and like all that stuff. Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin is like this Slavic Santa Claus, mm -hmm. like this big, which makes sense. It seems like Santa Claus would be would have like a Svalbardian accent or something. Totally, but he's he's, he's like north. tattoos. Uh huh. And <laughs> huge, it's like strapping. <laughs> I remember seeing trailers for this movie and going and really rolling my eyes and thinking it looked mm -hmm. dumb, but it was a, it was really charming. It's really sweet story 
I loved it. I love Jack Frost. Yep. Um, well, you love Chris Pine. I do love Chris in Pine. In all I was forms. Just like, Whatever. I'm interested. <laughs> Look, right off the bat, I'm just going to say, send us your favorite Christmas movies because yeah. we, we always like recommendations. Oh, yeah. And, and there's, there's a bunch we haven't seen. There are a bunch we haven't seen. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just like that. You see one and you're like, I, no, I don't want to no. see that. And then somebody tells you, like, no, seriously, do right. it. Right. Yeah. And it's worth watching. And, mm-hmm. it, and it ends up being one of your favorites. So, Shoot us your lists. Yeah. We'd love to hear them. Well, we're going to get into our story today. And this was sparked by a little Christmas idea because mm-hmm. we were looking at Charles Dickens. Right. You know, uh, uh, Mr. Christmas. Mr. Christmas. And he has, you might have heard, quite a silly story involving the author Hans Christian Andersen. That's right. Well, that led us to Hans Christian Andersen. Mm-hmm. And this guy's love story is out of this world. But the man himself is very interesting. So we really wanted to get into that today. Because, you know, author Hans Christian Andersen, he's most well known for stories like Thumbelina, uh, The Princess and the Pea, The Snow Queen, on which Frozen is very loosely based. (laughs) And, of course, The Little Mermaid, Mm -hmm. on which The Little Mermaid is sort of loosely based. Um, (laughs) Well, Hans was a tall, awkward, odd looking man who was a self-proclaimed virgin his entire life. Not for lack of trying. Mm. He fell deeply in love with men and women alike, but they were always people that he knew he could never get. But he turned his heartbreak into fairy tales and gave the world some of its most classic children's stories. So let's hear all about the awkward love of Hans Christian Andersen. And then in our next episode, we'll tell just the story of him and Charles Dickens. Let's do this. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio. Hans Christian Andersen was born in Odense, Denmark in 1805, and his parents were poor. His father was a 22-year-old man, also named Hans, and he was just a shoemaker. He had almost no education. And his mother was a 40-year-old woman named Anna Maria Andersdotter. A big age gap between those two. Very big, yeah. Now, she washed laundry for neighbors to help with the family income. But though they had little to their name, His parents really cared for him and they spoiled him as much as they could. And they would build their own toys for him and they would encourage him to use his imagination to entertain himself because they couldn't just go out and, you know, buy a PlayStation or a Tickle Me Elmo or whatever it is. Yeah. His father would read to him at night from Arabian Nights. Mm. And this gave Hans a real love of fantasy and adventure stories. And like I said, this kid is kind of tall. He's really awkward. He was gangly. But he loved singing and dancing. He looked very silly doing it, but he just didn't care. That's how we should all be with singing. Yeah. And just do it. It's so good for you. I wish I know some like tall, gangly clown types mm-hmm. and I love them singing oh, and dancing around. Yeah. It's great. I often was like, I would do it more if I was like, Look like if I looked like a marionette. Exactly. A marionette. <laughs> yeah, yes. absolutely. Sadly, Hans's father died in 1816 when Hans was just 11 years old. And the next year, his mother remarried, and Hans started going to a local school for poor children. He got a very basic education there. But like any time you go to school, he was Uh also teased a lot for being odd-looking and wearing cheap hand-me-down clothes. Uh They were like, wear your Air Force Ones or something cooler from today. (laughs) Air Force Ones? Is that a shoe? Yeah. Nellie had a whole song about it. Look. This is me dating myself, but that's what was really in. (laughs) It's you dating yourself and me showing how outside of pop culture I am. (laughs) (laughs) We both sounded real cool just Uh then. (laughs) And when Hans was 14, he managed to move to Copenhagen to find other weirdos like himself. Mm. The purpose of life, in my opinion, is to find your weirdos. And he wanted to pursue his dreams of being an actor and a singer. He was actually quite a talented soprano. So he was quickly accepted to the Royal Danish Theater in Copenhagen. Good job, Hans. There you go. Unfortunately, shortly after being accepted, his voice changed. I was a soprano when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. I was a very high-pitched singer. Mm. Yeah, they gave me solos because they're like, some of the girls can't hit these notes. It must be tough for... 
a person looking for good singers, like right. a choir director, and you find this prepubescent boy. <laughs> so the most beautiful, angelic That's voice. What saying. And you're like, sort of want to go back to the times when we could uh, make you a eunuch so you could preserve oh, this voice forever. <laughs> God, I hope my choral instructors didn't think that. I mean, I'm glad we went away from that practice. <laughs> but I bet there's a choir director out there who has... Every now and then been like, Man. oh, in a different age. <laughs> I was a I was a star soprano as a child, so maybe. Wow. Maybe it was considered. So he couldn't pursue the soprano dream like he had had before. But one of his colleagues at the theater had told Hans, dude, you are a poet. Mm. And Hans took that and ran with it. And he started writing like crazy. Now, one of the directors at the Royal Danish Theater, Jonas Collin, saw a lot of potential for this kid. And he said, all right, you know what? You're going to be a poet. You're going to be a writer. I'm sending you to grammar school in Sleilse. And Hans is like, you kidding me? That place is so expensive. Mm -hmm. Like, my mother washes laundry. I cannot pay for this school. You know how many shirts Uh one day at Sleilse (laughs) cost? Right. Well, Jonas Collins said, don't you worry about that kid. We're going to make it work. And he believed so hard in this boy. And he had such good connections that he managed to get Hans's tuition covered by King Frederick VI. Oh. And you might wonder why King Frederick VI was paying for this random poor kid mm-hmm. to go to this expensive grammar school. Right. Well, there's a little bit of a conspiracy theory behind this. And here, as our friend and producer Ben Bolin puts it, is where it gets crazy. <laughs> Los Angeles Times published an article in 1987 that says for years, Hans Christian Andersen's biographers haven't really trusted the author's own story about his birth. Mm. According to biographer Jens Jorgensen, at Broholm Castle, a 17-year-old noble girl named Elise Alfeldt Larvig was known to be pregnant out of wedlock in 1805, around the time that Hans Christian Andersen was born. The next year, she married Crown Prince Christian of Denmark against everyone's wishes. Mm -hmm. And the whole marriage was brief, happy, and kept pretty quiet. But the child she was pregnant with before their marriage, there is no record of. Yeah, this Prince Christian of Denmark, who went on to be king, in his Wikipedia, in any articles I could find about him, no mention of Elise Alefeld Lorvig. Oh. But in documents about her, she definitely was in love with him. And was briefly married to him. But they really were just like, she's, it was uh, a a class thing. Like she was out of his class. Mm. So it was this marriage nobody was really happy about. And they also allegedly had a second child together after they were married, a daughter who was hidden away and taken away from Denmark. Damn. And get this, at Castle Broholm, there was a housekeeper named Anna Maria Andersdotter, the (gasps) exact name of Hans Christian Andersen's mother. What? And after 1805, when this woman was pregnant and then mysteriously not, there's suddenly no record of Anna Maria Andersdotter working at Castle Broholm anymore. Hmm. Suddenly, around the same time, this 40-year-old woman shows up in a village with a brand new baby and Hmm. wherever this 22-year-old husband came from. Hmm. Okay, if that's not suspicious enough, Crown Prince Christian, who, like I said, would later be King Christian VIII of Denmark, Apparently, he had 10 children outside of his marriages, and all of them were diligently provided for. So if it felt a little weird to you that the royal purse was being used to pay for this random poor child's education, then this conspiracy theory might be the answer for you. I mean... Sounds legit. Right. Now, none of this is officially proven, of course, and other scholars highly doubt the claim But Jorgensen, who in the 1980s was actually the principal of the Slayelsa school where Hans Christian Andersen studied, wrote in his biography that in the time that Hans attended school there, townsfolk wrote letters to each other talking about how amazed they were with just how often Prince Christian visited this small town. Oh, what's he doing here again? What is there to see in Slayelsa? He comes to see every school play. (laughs) (laughs) Every baseball game. It's almost like his son is there. <laughs> Jorgensen also checked the records and saw that Anderson's tuition 
was more than twice the usual cost to go to that school. Like Hmm. he paid double to go to that school and all the payments were traced back to the royal family. Oh. Even stranger, Anderson's name never appears on the rolls. Jorgensen wrote, quote, to enroll, you had to show a birth certificate, but Hans didn't have one. That's so wild. I'm starting to believe this more and more. And it's true. Hans Christian Andersen did not get a birth certificate until he was 17 years old in November of 1823. So random noble girl has a baby that disappears. And at the same time, a housemaid with the same exact name as his mother suddenly has a baby Mm -hmm. at 40 years old Mm -hmm. with a 22 year old man. Mm -hmm. And then that baby is cared for by the royal family for his whole life. Come on. And visited and visited. Was he born of a secret romance between the crown prince and a noble girl? Did they just hand this baby off and promise to make sure his life was comfortable? This biographer Jorgensen really makes it seem like that was the exact case. Mm -hmm. And to me, it just seems like that's got to be what (laughs) happened, right? It's too obvious. Mm -hmm. They didn't even do a very good job at covering it up from my perspective. (laughs) But the Hans Christian Andersen Center in Denmark says Jorgensen's theories, quote, rest on a scandalous abuse of sources and have been emphatically denounced by experts on King Christian VIII. Hmm. But, of course, as with many conspiracy theories, those denouncements have only furthered people's belief in the idea. Well, why are you trying to cover it up then? I know, right? You know, it's a little strange. Hans Christian Andersen, technically, might have been heir to the throne of Denmark. Weird. And if I know one thing about heirs to the throne of Denmark... Uh, those stories always end well. <laughs> and they're kind of whiny. <laughs> well, whoever his parents were, and for whatever reason the royal family paid his tuition, Hans Christian Andersen was actually not a great student. Oh, damn. <laughs> you know the king wants you to be here himself. <laughs> Maybe you should apply yourself. No, he was very weak at spelling. He could not write formally, which according to famousauthors.org is, quote, probably why his writing style was simplistic with everyday spoken language. Something that would later prove to be more of a feature than a bug. Right, right. His, um, that's his, what set his writing apart. Yeah, his basic, simple children's writing was like what made his stuff so easy to read and what made children love it so much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But at the time, his headmaster was cruel and his instructors discouraged him from writing, which made him really depressed. Mm. But he persevered and he managed to finish school in 1828, at which point he fiercely dedicated himself back to writing again. He had written some short stories during school, despite the discouragement he got. He'd had a few little things published here and there. So he knew that this was a potential future for him still. And the next year after graduating, he published a short story called A Journey on Foot from Holman's Canal to the East Point of Amager. And he found decent success with that publication. Short story, long title. Yes. In 1833, he got himself a little grant from the king. Hmm. Another random little benefit from the royal family here. Dear debt, I mean, King (laughs) Christian. (laughs) Now, this grant allowed him to travel all across Europe. And while he's doing this, he's hearing local folk tales and fables. And he's taken in all these random stories and different cultures. And this allowed him to eventually write multiple collections of fairy tales that he released, I think, in three volumes. And these included Thumbelina, The Princess and the Pea, Tom Thumb, uh, The Emperor's New Clothes, and of course, The Little Mermaid. Ah, classic tales. Classic tales. Now, on and on his writing career went until he became the Hans Christian Andersen that we know and love today. Right. but. What about his love life? Mm. So many authors we have talked about were absolutely drowning in sex. Oh, my God. Victor Hugo. Victor Hugo. Just talked about about him. Walt Whitman liked to go troll around for young men. Right. (laughs) Write about it in his diary. Right. And these weren't necessarily hot studs either. No, no, no. Well, Anderson's own sexuality has been debated by scholars for decades. And we're going to start digging into those dirty details right after this break. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. 
This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the show, everybody. So in 1993, Hans Christian Andersen biographer Elias Bredsdorf analyzed Hans's diaries and concluded that he lived and died a virgin, mm. but was also a compulsive masturbator. Uh-oh. And he made little plus signs in his diary every time he oh. masturbated. <laughs> we, they love these little codes. Vicky, oh, they you know love how to sex code yeah. and stuff, too. Right. Well, um, you know, somebody snatches my diary. I don't want him quite to know That's right. what's going on. You Although he study. makes it pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. As the Guardian paraphrases, Hans would write, quote, Today I had a visit from so-and-so. They're so sweet. When they left, I had a double sensuous plus plus. <laughs> again, just like, what could he mean? A historian Richter Norton writes that Alfred Kinsey, the American sexologist, read a bunch of Anderson's original manuscripts and, quote, could say unequivocally that they were straight out homosexual stories. Scholars have found that when analyzing Hans's stories, while many of them are tales of goodness triumphing over evil, such as the Snow Queen, Others are pessimistic and sad. Britannica writes that, quote, a strong autobiographical element runs through his sadder tales. Throughout his life, he perceived himself as an outsider, and despite the international recognition he achieved, 
He never felt completely accepted. He never married, but again, not for a complete lack of trying. His diaries do make it pretty clear that he had sexual attraction and urges. Mm -hmm. He's always writing like, man, saw this person today and could barely contain myself. My blood is boiling. I'm bursting at the seams. I gotta have that booty. Um, And then he would write like, no, no, no. I've never had any booty and I never will. Plus, 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 plus. So historian Patrick Fleming cites one of Anderson's diaries in 1834 that says, quote, my blood is churning. Huge sensuality and struggle with myself. If it really is a sin to satisfy this powerful urge, then let me fight it. I am still innocent, but my blood is burning. Mm -hmm. And he makes that reference a lot, that he's still innocent, he's Mm -hmm. still chaste, he hasn't been deflowered or whatever words he uses at the time. Mm -hmm. And there is an element of religiousness to this, right? Like, he does reference the sin Mm -hmm. and things like that. So he he was pretty religious, but I think maybe that's more of a crutch to lean on Uh, than it is a reason that he never did have any sex. Mm. But we'll get into that a little bit more. Fleming says that a lot of Anderson's diaries had this sort of juxtaposition between his, you know, his immense horniness (laughs) and his obsession with suppressing it. But still, these pages are just peppered with plus signs everywhere. So (laughs) he obviously kept trying to, you know, Mm. work his issues out on his own. (laughs) He's the self-serve station. That's right. right. (laughs) He's like, Can't go out today. Need to polish the pewter. Plus, 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 plus. (laughs) Now, some biographers are convinced of Anderson's homosexuality, but others say it's more complicated than that. But certainly, as Fleming says, quote, outside the normative expectations of 19th century Denmark. Right. Which must have been very narrow. I mean, most places in 19th century were pretty narrow. Yeah. Anderson's own physician described his sexuality as ascetic or practiced with severe self-discipline and abstention. Mm. But Fleming cites a 1991 piece by Eve Sedgwick called Jane Austen and the Masturbating Girl that proposes that masturbation was its own form of sexuality. Right. If not literally, Fleming writes, then looking at it like a form of sexuality is at least a way to reevaluate our typical assumptions about sexuality. Mm. He says that with this in mind, It helps us to see, quote, that sexual identity exists along multiple intersecting axes, including not just the biological sex or gender assignment of one's self and one's partner, but the number of partners, including zero, whether sexual expression is physical or emotional, the cultural and historical communities in which one exists, and other factors that no list could exhaust. So basically saying sexuality is a spectrum. Oh, right. And there's a lot of different things that could inform that sexuality. Yeah, yeah. That have really nothing to do with your internal life and a lot to do with external life. Yeah, and we can't just, you know, narrowly categorize every person into these broad mm-hmm. sort of umbrellas, right? Like maybe there is this sort of solo sexuality where you are, you have sexual urges and you're willing to masturbate, but mm-hmm. you don't want to have sex with other people. Right. Um, I believe that's what Sedgwick is sort of talking about uh, in her article about Jane Austen. And Fleming picks that up for Anderson. Yeah. And, and again, they, they say maybe not really specifically solo sexuality as a thing, mm-hmm. but can we at least consider it and open our minds a little bit? Right. Well, and you can see it, too, because like, like for example, if you talk about asexuality, right. which we've done a little bit, yeah. Um, I know that's also got a, a very wide spectrum right of what that like some asexuals are fully aromantic Uh they're not interested in any form of anything right but there's also romantic asexuals Uh that do want some form of romance and are fine with having sex it's just not a big driver maybe for them and then some are like i like the romance part where we hold hands and then we kiss and we cuddle but there's no like sex part i don't like that part you know, and so on and so forth. Like, there's a huge, huge spectrum within yeah. asexuality. So I could I could see maybe like a solo like version where you're right. like, I like, I feel attraction, but I don't want the the physical intimacy part. Yeah. And I, and I can't speak for asexuals. No. But what's the difference between I, I'm decidedly solo sexual. Mm-hmm. I, I like to masturbate, but I don't like sex. And someone who's like, I have trauma 
curable or treatable or at least explorable trauma uh, that makes it very difficult for me to have sex with other people, but not to masturbate. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, at what point do you say, no, no, I'm just solo sexual and that's okay. Yeah. uh, Versus, I don't know, I'm, I'm, there's, there's a world out there that I'm not exploring because, you know, because of fear or trauma or whatever. Yeah. Anxiety, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if it's really like, well, what's, are you happy? Yeah. Uh, one way or the other. Like, if right. you feel like I I have a limited life. Yeah. Um, because I can't get out there and do what yeah. I want to do, then obviously you should address that. Right. If you're like, I feel perfectly happy with this. Right. And I don't want anything different. Then who who's to say that that's a wrong way to live your life? Right. Right. Sexuality is so uh, messy um, yeah. in in the best and worst ways. <laughs> now. Hans Christian Andersen's sexuality was not discussed publicly until years after his death in 1875. Expatica.com tells us that a newspaper, quote, hinted that he may have been a homosexual in 1893. And none other than a man we've mentioned many times on this show and have an episode coming up about, mm-hmm. Magnus Hirschfeld, wrote an article in 1901 discussing Hans Christian Andersen's likely homosexuality. Mm-hmm. But Robert LePage writes in The Guardian that there's evidence that Anderson was actually bisexual and crushed on both men and women. To explore that, we're going to actually jump forward in time and start with a love that Anderson felt in his late 30s with the Swedish opera singer Jenny Lind. Jenny Lind was touring Denmark with the Royal Swedish Opera in 1843 when she met Hans. Now, she's one of the most successful women artists in her time. Her career was nearing its height at this point. And Hans was supposedly so taken with her that he wrote his fairy tale, The Nightingale, as a tribute. This is a story of a Chinese emperor who caged a nightingale with the most beautiful singing voice in the kingdom. And he loved it so much that a salesman sent him a golden mechanical nightingale covered in jewels that sang for him and never got tired. So the emperor set the real nightingale loose. Now she was happy to be free, but was sad to be rejected in favor of a mechanical bird. Eventually, the emperor got tired of hearing the same song over and over again, and he broke the golden nightingale. Then he got very ill and wished his real bird would come back. And the nightingale did. She sang to him at the window every day and made him healthy again. Oh, she actually, the emperor asked her to come back and live in her cage again. And she was like, no, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) She just sang at the window. And he's like, all right, this is cool. I'll just sing for you at the window, but I can continue (laughs) to fly around my natural habitat. Now, this story was published and it was a huge hit. I mean, Hans Christian Andersen, already a pretty big name at this time. Right. And this story just took off. And this also contributed to Jenny Lynn's rising fame across Europe because everyone knew it was basically about her. Right. In fact, everybody started calling her the Swedish Nightingale as a nickname. Hmm. So really kind of just gave her the 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 Anderson bump. Yeah, right, the Anderson bump. <laughs> a side note about this story, Oscar Wilde later wrote a response to this story called The Nightingale and the Rose. And this was alluded to by Emily Dickinson in a letter to the woman that she loved, Susan Gilbert. Mm. Just, and we're going to do them in an episode oh, yeah. later, too. So just a lot of ridiculous romance crossover going around with the Nightingale right. here. I think we even discussed Jenny Lind in our episode about Tom Thumb. Yes. The, and the, the P.T. Barnum. Jenny Lind hung out with P.T. Barnum a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm, That's right. Yep. Now, Hans Christian Andersen wrote frequent pouting letters to Jenny mm-hmm. about how infatuated he was with her. He wrote in one diary entry, quote, No books, no men have had a more ennobling influence upon me as a poet than Jenny Lind. And they hung out all the time. Whenever she was in Denmark, Mm -hmm. they would go to lunch together. He would just kind of follow her around like a puppy dog. Mm. But in person, he was shy and awkward, and he didn't really know how to talk to her. One day in 1844, he met her on a train platform as she was about to leave for an opera concert, and he slipped her a letter that asked her to marry him. And she got on the train and was like, I'll, I'll open this on my way. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, the Hans Christian Andersen Foundation tells us that Jenny's answer was not preserved. We don't have that letter. But we do have one where she said, quote, that God bless and protect my brother is the sincerest wish of his affectionate sister, Jenny. Just really trying to be like, 
Oh boy, we are just like siblings, mm-hmm. aren't we, Hans? I love you, but not like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a year later, in 1845, she returned to Copenhagen for a concert tour, and Hans saw her daily. He admired her more than ever, but she did not reciprocate romantically. She held a dinner for friends at the Royal Hotel, and in a toast, she honored the ballet master, Auguste Bournonville, and said he had been like a father to her. Mm. And Bournonville replied, saying, well, now all Danes are going to want to be my sons so they can consider themselves your brother. <laughs> and to that, Jenny replied, quote, that is too many brothers for me. I would rather choose one to represent all the rest. And she picked up a second glass of champagne, walked over to Hans Christian Andersen, handed it to him and said, quote, will you be my brother? And he's like, no, <laughs> no, she clinked glasses with him. He knew it was never going to happen between them. Uh, they call it really bittersweet. I mean, can you imagine just just that moment where he's like, she's coming over. She's coming over. She's going to give me a champagne glass. And she's like, will you be my brother? And he's like, oh, I think I'll just go walk into a river. Uh-huh. <laughs> but he did keep that champagne glass in his living room until the day he died. Wow. And it can be seen today in the Hans Christian Andersen house in his hometown of Odense. So it really mattered yeah. to him. Now, Jenny Lind biographer believes that he based the Snow Queen's titular character on her with a heart made of ice. But that was never explicitly said by Anderson himself. So, yeah, we don't know for sure. So Frozen was originally based on the Snow Queen. That was their plan. The Disney movie Frozen. Mm -hmm. But they changed the script like 30 times (laughs) and it got way far away from it. But roughly the same story of a girl out in the wilderness who thinks that she can't love. She's got stone in her heart, mm-hmm. ice in her heart. Mm-hmm. And this one biographer says Hans sort of in a like incel way wrote uh, this about her as an insult. Like, yeah. you know, oh, you're so cold. You're such an ice queen. Dang. But, you know, I-, I think only timing really suggests that. We don't know that that's true or not. Mm-hmm. But if so, it was not the first time that Hans Christian Andersen wrote his heartbreak into one of his children's stories. Like we said, he also had a deep passionate and confusing love for a few men in his life. And one of them would make Hans Christian Andersen's heart flounder and drive him to write a story about a tiny woman who lived under the sea, (laughs) the little mermaid. And we're going to hear about that story right after this. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. 
join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everyone. In one of our favorite sources, The Marginalian, uh, Maria Popova writes about Harriet Hosmer. She was the world's first successful female sculptor. She's an American. She was awesome. She really shattered the mold, as you could hey, say. There you go. I see what you did there. <laughs> now, after a visit from Hans Christian Andersen, Harriet Hosmer wrote that he was, quote, a tall, gaunt figure of the Lincoln type with long, straight black hair, shading a face striking because of its sweetness and sadness. It was perhaps by reason of the very bitterness of his struggles that he loved to dwell among the more kindly fairies in whose world he found no touch of hard humanity. I would love to hang out with the more kindly fairies, too. Their world I know, sounds right? great. I'm interested in no hard humanity. <laughs> I am so sick of hard humanity. <laughs> Soften up, everybody. A little everybody. too much hard humanity these Seriously. days. Seriously. Now, when we look back at Anderson's life, we can kind of see how sad he must have been all the time mm -hmm. and why he might have wanted to get away from that hard humanity and hang out with fairies. <laughs> he was an awkward boy who wanted to dance around and bring joy and song to people who ended up teasing him. Mm -hmm. Then he was a bright and creative student who was discouraged from his own passions by his teachers. And then even after his first two volumes of children's stories, those fairy tales like Thumbelina, mm -hmm. critics skewered him. They said it was too simplistic, it didn't have enough morals, and children's literature was meant to educate, not entertain. That reminds me of our episode about Margaret Wise Brown. Yes, she we learned the same thing. About um, how they were changing, yeah. you, know, the, you know, what was considered appropriate for kids. Right. And they were like, you know, you can only give kids moral fables right. and tales, you know, that tell them how to be a person. And she's like, what if it's just like a dog in a coat? <laughs> <laughs> and the kids were like, yeah, what about a dog in a coat? I like a dog I'm in a coat. I'm interested in a dog in a coat. I kind of want to read this dog in a coat story that oh, you're talking well, about. She's got one. Oh, so great. She's got it. <laughs> <laughs> but also in Hans's life, he was passionate and emotionally intense, but he had guilt over his own sexual feelings. And he had a habit of falling in love with very unattainable people. Mm. I should mention that Jenny Lind, he knew he wouldn't have a good relationship with because of her touring schedule. Oh, sure. So he kind of set himself up for failure there. Mm -hmm. She was also way younger than him. She was mm -hmm. like 15 or 16 when he proposed, by the way. Yep. Yeah. Now, as tough as his rejection from Jenny Lind was, it was nothing compared to the most intense love he felt throughout his life to a friend he'd known since school named Edward Collin. This was the son of Anderson's early benefactor, the theater director, Jonas Collin, who oh. got Anderson the tuition money from the king for grammar school uh -huh. way back when. The guy who pulled all those strings by saying, hey, I've got your illegitimate son here. <laughs> Don't you want him to be something <laughs> one day? Now, Anderson lived with the Collins for a while. And at first, Edward wasn't very impressed by this awkward kid who had kind of barged into his life and home. Mm. 
But his dad had them practicing Latin and grammar together, and over time, they became closer. Edward thought it was so cool to have a friend his age hanging around all the time. And Hans Christian Andersen thought it was so cool to have a friend his age that he was head over heels, completely, absolutely obsessed and in love with. <laughs> Gabrielle Bello writes on LitHub that Edward never really knew quite what to say when Anderson got emotional with him and, quote, often simply expressed or feigned ignorance of Anderson's lust. Probably the best way to go about it. I guess, although you kind of want to be fair, because you're kind of leading him along a little bit, too, if you're just like, you know, I'm so in love with you. I think you're so amazing. And you're, you know, I'm just I feel so passionate about you. <laughs> and just to be like, OK, cool. <laughs> you're so funny. Great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Great. Love you too, bro. Uh-huh. <laughs> One time, Anderson slipped a rose under Edward's pillow while he slept and later wrote him a very special poem about roses. And we found this on Danish translator John Iron's blog. So... Let's go down to Poetry Corner and hear Hans Christian Andersen's poem to Edward Collins, The Rosebud. Rosebud, ever firm and round, like a young girl's lips, so sound. When I kiss you as my bride, lovelier still, you open wide. One more kiss your lips inspire. Feel my heart's fire. I must straightway have confessed no lips have I ever kissed. No girl waits with heart so true. Rose, my kiss must be for you. Ah, my yearning ne'er will tire. Feel my heart's fire. Wow. That is very passionate. And Edward Cullen got this poem and was like, yeah, I think she'll like it. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice writing there, buddy. Hans is like, by Rosebud, I mean... Your butthole. Oh. <laughs> I, I thought he meant lips. Oops. I know. He did. Okay. Oh, good. All right. I was making sure I wasn't he misreading did. it here. That's the Gen Z version. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Edward Collins, again, just not really knowing what to say when he gets things like this. So he's just like, nice. I love it. Great good job. words. You're, you're a real writer, buddy. <laughs> now, in their 20s, Anderson continued to write Edward letters, famously saying, quote, I long for you as though you were a beautiful Calabrian girl. Mm. And, you know, once again, we're guessing Edward was just like, cool, bro. Glad we're buds, too. <laughs> <laughs> Another time, Anderson seemed to switch the proverbial gender roles that he had written for them in that one by saying, quote, my sentiments for you are those of a woman. The femininity of my nature and our friendship must remain a mystery. <laughs> to which I'm sure Edward probably simply replied, LOL. <laughs> <laughs> Left him on red. Yeah, right. Or maybe he was like, yeah, mystery. That sounds good. Let's never, let's, let's keep never it figure this out. as a mystery. <laughs> now, the letters kept coming. Anderson sent Edward all his stories he was writing, and he slipped little sentiments like those into his attached notes. In 1834, Edward couldn't really take it anymore, and he snapped back in a letter, quote, you write too much. You have deplorable productivity. <laughs> <laughs> Bello says this almost broke Hans's heart. But, quote, as in many unhealthy relationships, Anderson kept at it. Yeah. But she writes that this desperation was, quote, perhaps at least partly born out of the immense pressure and pain of his day to repress his queerness. Right. Like, he doesn't really know what to say he's just obsessed with him and it's confusing him and it's frustrating him mm -hmm. and if he's like pretty religious yeah you know i'm sure it made him feel terrible like very right, guilty right. And, and wrong and again we go back to this unattainability where he's mm -hmm. like he knows he, at this point he willingly knows mm -hmm. that his friend has turned him down yeah right has said as much like if it was gonna happen it happen by now mm -hmm. but he keeps he's like well if i focus on him then I know I never have to worry about crossing that line. Yeah. Or I know I never have to find someone who might like me and then I screw it up. Sure. So lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. Ugh. Now, when his buddy Edward announced his plans to get married to a woman named Henriette in 1835, Anderson was devastated. But he kept inserting himself into their lives. He even tried to start a friendship with Henriette by sending her letters, mm. which is awkward. Soon, though, Bello writes, 
Anderson seemed to be actively trying to stop their marriage from happening. Mm. Now, in what Bellow calls one of his less angered states, Edward once wrote Anderson a letter in 1836 and referred to him in it as, quote, a worthy friend. Well, Hans Christian Anderson got a little PO'd by this little princess in the PO'd. <laughs> uh, he wrote back, quote, Why do you call me your worthy friend? I don't want to be worthy. That is the most insipid, boring word you could use. Any fool can be called worthy. I have hotter blood than you and half of Copenhagen, Edward. I also long for you, to shake you, to see your hysterical laughter, to be able to walk away insulted and not come back home to you for two whole days. <laughs> wow. Really, like, talk Like talking to him as if he's his wife. Right. Right? Like, I'm going to storm away from you and give you the silent treatment for two days. How do you like that? Right. You're going to sleep on the couch tonight. You're really in the doghouse now, Edward. Mm-hmm. Worthy. What an insult. Well, he's just like, I'm more special than that. I'm not just like, it's like saying, oh, you're my good buddy. It's not enough. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's not a special word. Like, you and I, we're more than just good pals. Right. Like, you should acknowledge the very, very special relationship we have. And Edward is like, how about just special without all the varies can we can we just be friends right well edward and henriette did get married and later edward would write in his own memoir quote i found myself unable to respond to this love and this caused the author much suffering Mm. he thought you know the human world it's a mess life under the sea is better than anything we got up here (laughs) so he put pen to paper and he started writing The Little Mermaid, mm. which historian Rick Norton says was a direct response to his feelings for Edward Collin. He had written to Edward in an 1835 letter, quote, If you looked down to the bottom of my soul, you would understand the source of my longing and pity me. Even the open, transparent lake has its unknown depths, which no divers know. And in the original Little Mermaid, Bellow says, Anderson describes the mermaid's world in a way that really mirrors this letter, kind of drew on his own language. Uh, He calls it a magical and mysterious place that we surface humans can barely imagine. Hmm. Again, unknown depths no divers could know, right? Yeah. So let's look at the story of the Little Mermaid. You've got a girl who has the most beautiful voice in existence. Is this Anderson? Because... He was, at the time, one of Europe's most treasured authors. Mm. But much like the Disney movie, in his story, when this little mermaid makes a deal with a sea witch (laughs) so that she can get legs and visit the prince that she once rescued from drowning, she finally gets to be a a part of that world Mm. that she always wanted to be part of. But she can't speak. She's lost her voice. And this kind of feels a lot like Anderson's own challenges in expressing his true nature, right? right? He's right. like, I always wanted to go talk to Jenny Lind, but when I, I, I made the trade to get the courage to go up to her, and once I get there, I have no voice. I can't say anything, yeah. yeah. Or or I can't be honest with Edward. Mm-hmm. As, I mean, I guess he was kind of honest with Edward. In a very, but... like, roundabout, hinty way, though, right? True, true. I Let me write so. you a metaphor of a poem rather than just say, hey, buddy, I want to make out with you. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> but you can see why especially if he wasn't encouraged sure. at all he's exactly. like well do you want to lose the friendship too right uh, i don't know right right well in his fairy tale mermaids live for 300 years but they have no souls and upon their death they simply dissolve into sea foam and cease to exist but humans get to live forever in heaven so the little mermaid makes the deal trading her voice for legs But in the original fairy tale, every step she takes on her legs feels incredibly painful, like she's walking on sharp knives. And the witch says she'll only get a soul if she marries the prince. If not, then on the day he marries someone else, she will die from a broken heart and dissolve into sea foam and suffer all that pain for nothing. The prince hangs out with the mermaid all the time. He loves to dance with her, which she does, despite the excruciating agony that she feels. But he never falls in love with her. Instead, he falls in love with the princess, who he believes is the woman who rescued him from drowning. Right. So you can see how it really mirrors Anderson's sort of melancholy relationship with love. Mm. Right? Like, maybe 
Hans Christian Andersen feels that he is sort of soulless or that his soul is corrupt, right? With these sinful feelings he has. And that maybe if he finds true love, that'll redeem him or sort of justify those feelings. Yeah. Otherwise, he's thinking, I might as well just dissolve into the sea. Hmm. Obviously, we've got the mermaid hanging out with the prince, giving him everything he wants, dancing with him, right? Mm -hmm. And entertaining him despite the extreme agony that she feels walking around on these legs. And that feels a lot like how Anderson might have felt growing up being best friends with Edward. Yeah. Right? I, I love hanging out with you, and it's the most painful thing I can yes. think of. Yes, yeah, unrequited love. Definitely. Uh, pain, yeah, absolutely. And then you've got in the story Edward, I mean, the prince, Duh. right? <laughs> Who thinks that that stupid princess saved him from drowning. Henriette. Right? When it was actually... <laughs> Hans Christian Andersen, I mean, the Little Mermaid, Mm -hmm. who saved him. So Andersen's like, no, Edward, I'm the one who helped you grow into the man you are today. Mm -hmm. And yet you're going to go marry this this girl you think is so special. Right, who did nothing for you. Who did nothing. (laughs) I've been here for you the whole time. Right. Right? You can really see the parallels here. I I think it's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Now, after the prince marries the princess and the Little Mermaid is about to die... The mermaid's sisters come to the surface, having made a new deal with the sea witch. They give the sea witch their hair in exchange for a dagger that if the little mermaid uses to kill the prince and drip blood on her feet, she'll turn back into a mermaid. But the little mermaid just can't do it. Mm -hmm. She throws herself from the ship and dissolves into sea foam. But instead of ceasing to exist, she ascends into the sky as an air spirit and because of her selflessness is given the chance to earn a soul by doing good deeds for mankind for 300 years. Wow. Which, uh, let's see, 1837, so we're still in it. Yeah. She should still be working on it. She's still working on some good deeds, I guess. Get down here, mermaid. I got some (laughs) suggestions for you to earn that soul. (laughs) I think it's lame to be like, you were so selfless, so now you get to be selfless for 300 more years, and then you get... Hey, it's either that or dissolving a sea foam. A sea foam, you know, <laughs> not that bad, is it? <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of debate about the ending of this story. Critics were kind of mixed on it at the time. Mm-hmm. It's a it the the ending is one of the biggest things he changed because he based this on a story called Undine or Undine mm-hmm. about a mermaid, kind of a similar setup. Um, mm-hmm. But she just died at the end. Oh, okay. And I was just like, no, I, I want to give it a little more of an uplifting thing. And some people have said, well, is that him trying to find himself a happy ending or he's mm-hmm. just unwilling to kill this character off? Right. I sort of like it as this idea of I, I half wonder if Hans wasn't like, man, I wish I could just stab Edward. <laughs> I hate him so much. I'm so <laughs> mad at him for what he did to me. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Instead, no, I'm going to release myself mm-hmm. and maybe that will redeem me. And I'll, yeah. and I'll be given a, a better chance for a better life after this. But you can also see if someone's religious that they, you know, there there should be a way to redeem yourself yeah. and, and find earn a place in paradise right. and all that stuff. Right, right. I think it's fascinating. Uh, I haven't read the original story of you, ever. No, Just I haven't actually. Yeah. No, I, I mean, uh, I guess we, we did a show <laughs> years ago where uh-huh. we did the actual fairy tales. Right. And that's kind of the only time that I had ever really dove in and saw how much more crazy the They're real so ones are, especially of Grimm's, of course. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, the Grimm brothers. The Grimm brothers' whole point was, let me make you scared and miserable. Right. And horrified. But yeah, <laughs> we were trying to freak you out. Hans went back and forth between like, I really want to make you feel good about yourself and entertain you, and also like, isn't life miserable? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do feel sorry for how anguished he must have been. Yeah. I mean, you said incel. And I think that's kind of accurate because I don't think he wanted to be necessarily celibate. Yeah, I mean, yes and no, because I mean, he didn't, but he must have because I think he also kept himself there. Mm -hmm. I think he found reasons to, I mean, again, in that sort of insult kind of way, like found reasons to blame other people when Mm -hmm. really he could have looked a little more inward and been like, well, what am I what am I putting out into the world? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, who am I talking to and how? Because that was the other thing, too, is he, you know, what wasn't direct and then but was smothering at the same time. Yes. That's very frustrating for anyone. Right. Well, I guess that's what I meant when I was talking about Edward, you know, deflecting and that being kind of the best way to do it. Right. Right. 
I guess that's pretty informed by, I don't know, being being a woman, because you can't it's very hard to just outright be like, no, because then people are like, you're mean. Sure. And if you make a man mad about something like that, sometimes it puts you in serious danger. Sure. And he gives a little bit of stalker, stalker vibe. So even if you're not like this guy does really want to stab me for real. Yeah. He at least will make me really uncomfortable and like be invading my space and constantly in my face and saying things that make me uncomfortable and stuff like that. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes the easiest and I, like you said, not always effective, but sometimes it feels like the safest, easiest route is to be like, oh, you, yeah, so you, you're the best, you know, right, and just sure. kind of try to like get get them to realize without a- actually saying out loud, like, I don't want that. I'm not yeah. interested in that way. Yeah. Please leave me alone. Right. Which can lead to. Hell hath no fury, <laughs> sort of <laughs> like a writer's scorn. Like a writer's scorn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a lot of miscommunication, indirect communication, mm-hmm. right? That that led. I, I mean, you're right about the threats and the worry and the concern, but it's also just this spiral of no one's just saying it, right? So you keep kind of circling. Well, he didn't outwardly reject me, so I'm gonna kind of keep gonna... hinting at it. So and he's like, well, he here. hasn't. He, so he hasn't directly asked me, so I'm going to keep hinting rejection, and they're just whirlpooling each other into this yeah. into this misery spiral. Do we know if homosexuality was illegal in Denmark at that time? I do know that it was decriminalized in 1933, so I couldn't find anything specific about the 1800s, but it looks like, yes. That does suggest that it was a criminal yes. action before that. Before that, yeah. So, yeah, well, that might be part of it, where you can't be that open sure. with your questions or, or like trying to determine exactly what you're trying to get out of this rosebud poem and stuff yeah. like unfortunately it was it was a question that was on par with like are you a pedophile are you a yeah. rapist you know like something could ruin your life and career yeah. and people would be like i'm not inviting you over anymore you can't be around my kids like horrible shit it's not appropriate to to put those on par right but that's kind of how it was that's what they were of. doing and the self-loathing that right, would have come course, with it, that would right? Come with. From both the religious and legal aspect, right. right? So maybe Edward even had a little bit like, well, I don't want to ask because then we can't really be friends anymore. And I, I do mm. value your friendship and I don't want to say something that'll offend you so much that you'll be like, I can't, you know. <laughs> you got to imagine, though, if he's like, are you homosexual? And Hans Christian Anderson were like, no, what would give you that idea? But he wouldn't be like, come on. What would give me that idea? Let me let me pull out these receipts. Um, uh, quote, <laughs> my feelings for you are as a woman. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> You've put a rose under my pillow while I slept, sir. Mm. Think that was a normal bro thing to do? <laughs> well, look, Hans Christian Andersen's love life was clearly incredibly complicated, especially for a man who never even once ever had sex. Mm-hmm. He himself like seemed to be very passionate about love, but he also didn't seem quite sure what to do with it, right? He didn't really seem to understand his own feelings. He might have been afraid to act on them, as we've said, or ashamed to discover what was under the surface. So, you know, when he felt strongly about someone and he couldn't contain it anymore, he kind of did overflow in the worst way possible and and scare these people off, whether he knew he was going to or not. Mm -hmm. So maybe his pursuit of unattainable people was deliberate to protect himself from you know, a, a, a less predictable rejection, mm. right? Like, well, if I go after them, I know it's not going to work. But if I go after this person, it might, and then it would hurt me more that it doesn't. True. But Jenny and Edward were not the only two people that he was obsessed with who also kind of thought that Hans was a little too much. <laughs> he also spent an infamous summer with Mr. Christmas himself, Charles Dickens. And we're going to talk about all of that in our next episode. So definitely stay tuned for that. It's going to be a special Great Christmas story, story. <laughs> um, just about just about the two of them. Mm-hmm. I love it. I'm so good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very excited to tell you all that story. Yeah. Special Christmas episode. We might have a bonus treat in store for that episode, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so stay tuned. Yeah. Please let us know what you thought of. Hans Christian Andersen, his love life. I, w- I wish we could have done a whole biography about how his all of his stories were written and mm-hmm. when and all this stuff. Fascinating stuff. But of course, you know, ridiculous romance. We got to right. keep it to the subject. Right, right, right. Um, but he certainly had some ridiculous romances. He sure did. Yeah. 
And I, I'm a little sorry for him. Yeah. I am. Yeah. Well, let us know what you think of Hans Christian Andersen's masturbation diary or his Swedish nightingale or his best friend. Um, you can reach us through email. It's ridiculousromance at gmail.com. Yeah, or find us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Oh Great, it's Eli. I'm at Dynamite Boom. And the show is at Romance. And we will catch you all in the next episode where we talk about Mr. Christmas. Thank you all so much for listening. Thanks. Love you. Bye-bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. And I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.